Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about medicine and agriculture with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet and for chickens. My name is Kevin Fulta and today I'm talking to you from Archer, Florida uh, from my backyard. So if you hear chickens in the background, that's what you're hearing. I'm always very interested in the instances of domestication and how the plants or plants and animals uh, went from wild antecedents and humans domesticated them brought them into their control and their husbandry with the idea of uh, improving them genetically and with us today is uh, someone who's been with us before is professor gregor larson and uh, he's a director of, of the paleogenomics and bioarchaeology research network in the School of Archaeology at Oxford University. Uh, hello, welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Larson. Hi, it's, it's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back again. The last episode we had with you was on dog domestication, and it's one of the more popular episodes. So hopefully chickens will get quite a bit of traction as well. So that what do we know about bird domestication in general? I mean, which, which birds are humans or were humans interested in uh, bringing under their provision? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's been a lot less work on bird, uh, bird domesticates than there have been on a lot of the canonical animal domesticates that everybody's pretty familiar with. Uh, we know that, uh, of course, there's ch- which is ironic, really, because there's more chickens than there are any other domestic animal put together. I think there's the most recent estimates have it like six or seven chickens for every human being on Earth, which puts them over 50 billion chickens, which is just staggering. Um, and, and, t- and equally, in terms of weight, they are just absolutely enormous. But they're sort of invisible in their ubiquity, because though we, we kind of take them for granted and only really experience them as bits of meat in cellophane-wrapped packages in supermarkets or as bones on streets or whatever else, but rarely do you interact with or, or see a whole bird, although that is changing a bit now with the, the rise of backyard chickens. So, um, and given that people just sort of generally take them for granted, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, scientific exploration of their origins. And a lot of the stories that have been circulating for a long time have, haven't really been questioned. And there's a lot of assumptions that are made and a lot of kind of um, uh, people very willing to accept narratives or myths even without really poking at them, which is uh, part of a project that we're engaged with now with a whole range of academics to try and do exactly that, which is to say, when were chickens domesticated? How did they come uh, into such close proximity and have such a close relationship with people? And and what happened to them once they began getting domesticated? So, yeah, I mean, the the other chickens or the other birds rather that we know have been domesticated are turkeys, of course, in the New World, and they have a really interesting history. Of, uh, of in Mexico and the southwest of the U.S. and being moved around. And then there are uh, pigeons, which may have been around a, close to human settlements for seven, 8,000 years, maybe longer. Although, again, that's uh, very mysterious. Nobody really quite knows what the time depth for that is. And then uh, you, a lot of the other ones that we think of, uh, like 
uh, guinea fowl or um, uh, geese and ducks. These are they tend to be a bit more recent, although, again, it's you don't have to go back that far before a lot of the information gets shrouded in kind of mystery and hearsay. So, yeah, we, we should know a lot more than we do, and it's rather embarrassing that we don't know more. <laughs> but that's what you're figuring out. And could you tell me a little bit about your toolbox? So you're using a combination of, uh, let's say, um, DNA information, genomics information, plus maybe morphological information. Like what, what are the ways in which the experts actually build these relationships and try to unravel what's happening with domestication? Yeah, that's a great question. The primary means, really, is just to try and identify the bones. So this is the work of a lot of archaeologists or and, and a subset of archaeology, which is called zooarchaeology over here, or archaeozoology in North America, which is identifying and then looking at the size and the shape change and the frequency of different animal bones that are found within archaeological contexts. And with birds, it's sometimes difficult because... Uh, not just because bird bones are hollow, which makes their preservation not nearly as robust as a lot of animal bones, but also it's difficult to often distinguish between different species of birds. And so you could get um, a bird that you think may be a chicken, a chicken bone, and it turns out it actually belongs to something else completely. So it's not always easy to determine what species, much less its domestic status. I mean, a, a wild red jungle fowl bone is going to look very similar, especially when it's been fragmented and sitting in the earth for quite a long time, for, to, a, to a domestic chicken. And really, the only time you start getting significant differentiation in domestic chicken bones is really in the last hundred or so years when the selection for chickens by people for much bigger birds growing much faster uh, has allowed for those bones to take on characteristics that now make them much more readily distinguishable from red jungle fowl. But as soon as you start going into the past beyond a couple hundred years up to a couple thousand years, you it becomes very difficult to say whether or not you're dealing with a wild bird or uh, a domestic variant, and therefore you have to add in a whole bunch of other kinds of evidence. And so we're working with anthropologists and those people on the team who are exploring uh, linguistic evidence, iconographic evidence, written evidence, and trying to then piece together the story of how chickens first came involved with people. And then once they started moving with people, the routes that they took, and then when they first started arriving in different places, and even what happened to those birds when they arrived in places where there were different wild species of jungle fowl that they may have uh, intermingled with or mated with, and then taken on additional characteristics. So uh, it's, uh, it's the only way to really approach this is to do it through a whole variety of academic disciplines, all working simultaneously toward the same question. That's really cool. And you may mention this jungle fowl thing. So was that the immediate wild precursor to the current domestic chicken? Yeah, so there are four species of jungle fowl, wild jungle fowl, and they tend to be named after the color. So the red one, called the red jungle fowl, is found primarily in peninsular and Southeast Asia. And that is the primary ancestor of domestic chickens. But there are also green jungle fowl found on Java and gray jungle fowl found in South Asia, as well as a, a native species of jungle fowl found on the island of Sri Lanka. And it's entirely conceivable. In fact, we have some pretty good evidence that modern chickens possess some traits that they actually didn't acquire from the red jungle fowl, even though they were domesticated from them, is that when they're moved into different parts of the world where there were different jungle fowl there, they hybridized with those birds and then acquired some characteristics. So there's some pretty convincing evidence that, for instance, the yellow legs that are 
canonical within uh, depictions of domestic chickens. I mean, you don't, anytime you look at a cartoon of a chicken, it's got yellow legs on it. And that that yellow leg trait actually was derived from the gray jungle fowl found in South Asia rather than from the red jungle fowl. So it looks like by the time chickens got to South Asia, they didn't have that yellow legs and they mated with some uh, birds that were derived from the gray jungle fowl, acquired that yellow leg trait and then kept moving on from there. So uh, there's a really interesting pattern of genomic hybridization and trait acquisition as domestic birds are being moved around with people and then start being exposed to and hybridized with birds that themselves were never domesticated independently, but then were um, contributed those characteristics to modern birds. And do we know if that is deliberate? Like, was that humans actually saying, hey, here's a red one and a gray one. I wonder what happens if we put them together. Or was this something that when humans began to uh, bring, say, you know, derivatives of the red jungle fowl to a new location, they there were mates that maybe just kind of happened to hap- happen or and I guess where I'm going is, was this a human mediated hybridization or was it just chance or do we even know? That's a really good question, and that is actually cuts to the core of domestication writ large, really. I mean, to what degree have humans been involved with any sort of deliberate way of either domesticating animals or then of selecting for particular traits or of then hybridizing with other populations? And I wonder myself, I'm leaning more recently toward the end of that human intentionality has actually played a very limited role up until the last century or two when we've been much more concerned with productivity and production traits and feeding lots of people and getting really uh, into the nitty-gritty of the genetics for how we can make animals grow faster and grow larger and produce more milk and uh, do all of these things which benefit us. And I think we often fall into the trap of assuming that that's what our ancestors were after as well. And when we impose a perspective from the present onto the past that I think often gives us a very false impression or at least blinds us and blinkers us to really think about what was happening about in the changes of the relationships between animals, including birds and people as part of that whole domestication continuum that I think we, we do ourselves a disservice when we start assuming that there was a great deal of human intentionality with this and that people were very much in control of the managing the birds and of their reproduction and of their life and death and everything else. And I suspect that that probably wasn't the case. In fact, there's some pretty good evidence to suggest that birds and certainly chickens were only have only been eaten in a very in the very recent past, and that primarily chickens were kind of a bit like you can think of feral dogs or even like pigeons in major cities where um, where they're hanging around and they're tolerated, but they're not really being exploited for anything. And so we, when we start to insist that birds and chickens specifically must have been domesticated for their, for their meat, when you look at a lot of these bones, and when, even when you look at bird, chickens just from the 1950s, these are really scrawny birds. There's, there's not much meat on them, and they've doubled in size in just the last 50 years, and so it's just, or even more. So I, and there's a whole lot of other evidence about cockfighting, about iconography, about um, associations with religion, and it just seems like chickens were part of human culture and part of a human environment, but not necessarily as a food item. And it was only much later and much more recently that chickens have started to be eaten on, on the kind of commercial scale that we're used to now. And I guess, you know, that's the trap I fell into because I thought, well, the humans must have kept these things around for some sort of purpose because, I mean, I, you know, they, they 
they're noisy. They take food. They're, uh, they require food. They require some sort of maintenance. I guess when they're wild, they just go out and eat whatever, uh, you know, mine do in the backyard. But um, was there was there an interest in anything like maybe the eggs were helpful or and is there any evidence to indicate that some part of the chicken was a reason for people to start to bring it aboard and welcome them into their homes or on their homesteads? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's it's almost sort of that I think it's always after the fact, like if, a, if the bird is being attracted to the human niche for some reason, we've got this hypothesis that we're working on now that actually it looks like it's the introduction of rice agriculture into regions where you get red jungle fowl that is actually bringing, because they're, they're, they can fly and they hang out, they, they're arboreal, I mean, they hang out in trees. So there's, it's, they wouldn't have much incentive to be on the ground because it's much easier to be, much more readily predated when you're um, resting on the ground than if you're up in the branches. And when we look at the timing, the archaeological timing of the introduction of rice with the timing that we can start to see on the bones in terms of the frequency of the chicken bones that are found and the suggestions that maybe these are domestic birds, both in peninsular Southeast Asia and then through South Asia and even into the Levant and Europe, it looks as though when the two, there's, there's a real... Uh, consistency between the dates of the introduction of rice agriculture and the introduction of chickens. And so it's kind of an intriguing correlation. Uh, we're not sure that it's causation necessarily, and we're still doing some work to explore it. But we are at this point thinking, just within our group anyway, that it could very well be that as people who are much more involved with and dependent upon rice agriculture are sowing a whole bunch of rice that the chickens are then attracted to something. Maybe the, the insects, maybe the weeds, maybe not the rice itself, but they're being drawn to those, those rice agricultural patches. And by doing so, acquire the kind of more tame characteristics that allow them to subsist off of those resources in, in very much closer proximity to people. And then once they're around, people start recognizing them. And maybe you're right, maybe they start seeing that the, the eggs are you know, quite easy to obtain and are rather tasty, or they really like the coloration. I mean, a red jungle fowl is a highly impressive bird, and the the feathers must have, especially for the wild versions, were just incredible. And so there's a number of cultures globally that use feathers uh, for all kinds of ritual purposes or just to have around and, you know, put them in, incorporate them into clothing and things. So I think that it's more a, ch a case of kind of accident and taking advantage of opportunities rather than people having an idea beforehand and then deliberately going out to grab a chicken saying, well, well, we can use this for eggs and feathers and meat and whatever else, that all of those things are layered upon after the fact. And it's really something kind of strange, maybe like rice agriculture that actually draws the two species together. And then from there, you start this relationship where they can both start exploiting each other in one way or another. Yeah, I, I never really thought about that with about the feathers and the other potential utility of having chickens around. It's kind of like the Swiss Army bird. Yeah, and, and there's all kinds of really great stories about how um, uh, people who were traveling through the Indian Ocean would put a cock well up onto the, the mast of their boats because when the fog came around, that's how they could stay in touch with each other because they would crow. And even in Japan, there's this, they've selected for something called the long crowing cock, which just can, can crow for something like a minute and a half or something. So, I mean, it's a Swiss army knife and then some because of all the different ways chickens can be useful. And if you can imagine that prior to the introduction of chickens in Europe, uh, less than 
uh, 3,000 years ago, maybe about 2,500 years ago, that there were no domestic birds at this point. And you can imagine how, it must have, how alien this must have been when these chickens start coming in with some people. Like, wow, you know, they have cows, they have sheep, they have goats and pigs, but and dogs, of course, for a long time. But a chicken would have been something completely different. And that crowing element then gets incorporated into the Catholic Church. And so then you see uh, images on of cocks on wind vanes and the top of steeples all over the place. And so it, the birds somehow, chickens, very readily integrate with human cultures and get adopted to do kind of serve a purpose that, and, and eating them is only very recent and only one of maybe, a, you know, 50 different things that chickens were doing that just seemed to be very intriguing and that people were really attracted to them for a wide range of reasons. Oh, the other thing that I, in preparing for today was that you could start to infer, infer about when chickens were domesticated for maybe meat and eggs when you started to see a shift in the ratio of females to males, because you only need one male to service, you know, dozens of females and uh, males don't necessarily always get along together. And could you talk a little bit about that and how that evidence uh, appears when we look in the archaeological record? Yeah, that's true, not just of chickens, but it's also the kind of standard way of looking at animal domestication writ large. As soon as you start taking, uh, assuming an animal is, um, it's what people have referred to as a prey pathway. You're hunting this thing. And then if you're taking more deliberate control over its reproduction to try and manage that resource and try and maximize the productivity, you're absolutely right that the, the skew and sex ratio is one way to look at that. And certainly that, that's true of chickens as well. Um, I've heard some people recently say that there's other reasons that you would get a skewed sex ratio that doesn't necessarily have to be humans that are doing it. But uh, And the other thing with chickens, of course, is that it's people are suspected about 100 years ago, it's only 100 years ago, that you start separating the two lines of chickens into broiler chickens and layer chickens, where you really start emphasizing. It's almost like... Uh, you know, before if you're in, in soccer or in basketball, when everybody has to play offense and defense, whereas in the NFL, you have one team for offense and one team for defense, and everybody gets hyper-specialized in their individual roles, that specialization of chickens is really into those two very distinct roles of, of eggs and meat is really only about 100 years old. And prior to that, chickens were kind of an all-purpose thing that did eggs and meat. And also the frequency of, at which they're laying uh, it starts to increase significantly only very recently. And you don't have to go back very far before chickens weren't doing an egg a day. They were was a much longer period of time between them. But of course, the only ones that are laying those eggs are those females. And so, but, it, but the males did have, they could crow and they had much nicer plumage. And so there was reasons to keep both around. And I'm looking at those sex ratios does tell you uh, some interesting things about the change in the relationship and, and the more deliberate control that people had over these things. But it's not, it's just one line of evidence that we can use to, to look at that changing relationship. Well, right now we're talking with uh, Professor Gregor Larson, and he's from the School of Archaeology at Oxford University. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back with you in just a moment. Hey, everyone, this is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably an awesome person who's probably found themselves in a debate or two about the validity of genetic engineering and its use in food production. You may have even noticed the same problem I've been picking up on. There's lots of good information out there about genetic engineering, but very few people who need to see it are exposed to it. Well, I'm making videos that lay people like myself can actually understand and digest. I'm a filmmaker, so this is my contribution to science communication. They are the perfect thing to post on the wall of that friend you have. You know, that person who just can't seem to grasp the awesomeness of GE crops, who maybe gets hung up on things like chemicals or Monsanto or whatever. 
The videos I make cover a wide variety of topics, and you can watch them by searching No Ideas Media, remember that's no as in knowledge, on Facebook or YouTube. The videos will likely cover what you already know, but the point is, we gotta share them with people who don't know. The mission at No Ideas Media is to be pragmatic, not dramatic. So help us spread the right information about genetic engineering. Thanks a lot. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Professor Gregor Larson, who's from the School of Archaeology at Oxford University. And we're talking about domestication of chickens and the fascinating stories of the birds that we kind of take for granted. And so we talked a lot about the early domestication and, and the reasons why they may have been domesticated. But from their original spots in, the, in uh, Asia where they were domesticated, how did they move from there? Yeah, so what happens is that the wild red jungle fowl, we, and this is the hypothesis we're working on, gets, starts getting attracted to a human niche uh, through because of this introduction of rice agriculture. And that presents an opportunity for these birds to start um, eating a much more regular um, um, source of food, whether that's the insects or the weeds or whatever else. But as soon as they become incorporated with people and they get integrated into those human cultures, those cultures will and start moving along with rice agriculture. And of course, there's some trade associated with as well. But it looks like they head west and they get to South Asia, where there are still native populations of red jungle, of jungle fowl, some red in the northeast, but then mostly gray jungle fowl. But as soon as you leave uh, South Asia and you start heading west, there are no more indigenous species of jungle fowl. So at that point, the chicken doesn't have anything left to mate with, and it just keeps hanging out with people and, and keeps coming west into the Levant, uh, where there are a large number of chicken bones found at a number of sites uh, dated to about 1000 B.C., and then from there, they radiate into Europe, where they show up about 800 BC, maybe a little bit later than that, and then slowly come up into the UK, where there's a few that are associated with, with pre-Roman context, but not many. But the chicken really starts going, I mean, the Romans love chickens. And in fact, we see a lot of really neat evidence that uh, there's uh, uh, an old Roman uh, excavation on a, where people were watching various shows and things. And you can see within the stands of this excavation that there's a ton of chicken eggshells. And there's, so people, it's, you imagine going to a baseball game, instead of getting peanuts or something else thrown at you from the guy who's wandering up and down the stairs, they've got eggs. And some of these eggs actually have chicks in them. So that was like a delicacy where it wasn't just the, the raw eggs. You still had the, the embryos in them. And that was a, something that you could eat as well. And so, you know, we can imagine the Romans doing a lot of the same similar things and, and really taking advantage of chickens as a, as a food resource and eggs as a resource as well. And the, and the Romans love this and start really uh, using them in a way that we would recognize. But what's really interesting for us is that we put a paper out last year was that there's a particular gene that we find called thyroid-stimulating hormone receptor. And it's TSHR for short. And in 2010, there was a group in Sweden that found that this particular gene was ubiquitous in domestic chickens for what they call the derived or the domesticated type. But the wild type version of that was all was found in all the red jungle fowl. And they didn't really find any version of this in the red jungle fowl. So the suspicion was that this was a gene that was important in the early process of domestication. Otherwise, how do you explain its modern ubiquity? It's found in every domestic chicken, regardless of whether you're a broil or a layer or a fighting bird or anything else. And so we looked at this, we went and typed this gene in a wide range of ancient chickens, mostly in Europe. And we found that if you go back about 1,000 or 1,500 years ago, 
actually the gene wasn't fixed. It, there was, it was kicking around at about 40 or 50%, but the wild-type allele was st still very much present in the domestic birds. So then we decided to apply a, uh, what we call this likelihood framework to try and assess when was it that the selection for this gene really kicked in. When did people, for however deliberately, start changing the way that they started associating with chickens that drove the selection for this gene and, and turned it into its, its modern fixed um, proportion so that there aren't any domestic birds now that don't have this. And when we ran the analysis, uh, we were completely blind of any of the archaeology or any of the history or whatever else, and we kept coming out with the same number, which was 1000 AD. And I called a colleague of mine, and most of my work is, is much uh, prior, earlier than that, like, you know, five to 10,000 years ago. And so things that are much more recent, I don't really know that much about. And I called a colleague and I said to her, I was like, you know, does 1000 AD meaning, mean anything to you? Because we keep coming up with this number for chickens. And she's like, are you kidding me? You should take a look at my thesis because 1000 AD features prominently throughout it. And so we got together and we started looking at all the evidence. And it looks like from the historical evidence that there was uh, what was called the Benedictine Reform. Uh, which was a bunch of people in Europe at about 1000 AD who were being much more strict about when and for how long people needed to fast. And when people fasted, they said you, they weren't allowed to eat four-legged animals, but chickens and eggs were okay. And of course, people like a protein source. And if you're allowed to eat chickens and eggs during long, you know, if you were fasting for a third of the year, then not surprisingly that the demand for chickens started to explode and people started harvesting them and keeping them in much uh, closer proximity to one another because they wanted, there was just a lot more demand for these chickens. And that's precisely when you see a significant increase in the frequency of chicken bones in archaeological sites. It doubles from about 6% of all animals to about 12%, again, over the same period. And that is the perfectly coincident with our genetic analysis, which showed that the selection on this gene, which we think has something to do with the ability of uh, chickens to get along with each other and, and reproduce much more efficiently in closer proximity to one another. So it's almost like, yeah, now we're all stuck next to each other. What do we need to do in order to make that still uh, work out and not get too freaked out about it? And if you have this version of this gene, it allows you to do so. And so there was a, there was a very strong selection on the gene that kicked in at exactly the same time that the, the church was in, enacting these Benedictine reforms and really kind of led to what we consider the modern fast food chicken or the origins of the modern fast food chicken, where chickens become a lot more of a food item and produced on a much more industrial scale than they had been in the millennium before that. So it was a really neat demonstration that by looking both at the genetics, the zoo archaeology, as well as the historical evidence, and they were all pointing in the same direction, that 1000 AD was one of those cliff edges in terms of chicken evolution, and that before that, chickens were around, but only after 1000 do would they really start to uh, occupy that role that we're now familiar with them. So after the chickens were domesticated in Asia, how did they get to the Americas? Yeah, that's a great question, and one that... Uh, there's a lot of controversy about, we know for certain that Columbus brought chickens along with all the other domestic animals that you're familiar with from uh, what we call the old world, uh, dogs and pigs and chickens and cows. And they all came uh, on Columbus's second voyage, and then everybody who came over afterward from Europe also was bringing animals with them. It's also possible, though, that Polynesians who had chickens, and there are definitely chickens in Hawaii, there's chickens in Easter Island, there's chickens in New Zealand as well. And there is this thought that possibly Polynesians coming east from Easter Island may have brought chickens with them and introduced them to South America. And the earliest radiocarbon dates of chicken remains on the west coast of South America 
are just about the same time as when we know the chickens are being introduced by Europeans. So it's not clear cut, and uh, nor is it especially. So those chicken remains could have come from Europe, or maybe they came from the Polynesians. And uh, there's not a whole lot of hard evidence to to back up either hypothesis at this point. But uh, there's certainly people who. Uh, would like for your uh, Polynesians to have done it, and other people who are would like to be convinced by a bit more evidence. It's kind of interesting because it seems like if there's one constant throughout the chicken domestication literature, it's idea of disagreement and controversy. And what are some of the biggest bones of contention in chicken archaeology? Yeah, I mean, and but chickens aren't alone in this. I mean, animal domestication kind of writ large is full of a lot of unknowns. I mean, anytime you're exploring the origins of anything, you go back far enough and this just not, it's a lot of smoke, it's a lot of mirrors, it's a lot of hearsay, it's a lot of speculation. So with chickens, uh, there are even just the, the timing of when chicken domestication first got underway is, is a big question mark. And some people have said six, seven, eight thousand. Our group is a bit more conservative. We think it's probably a bit more closer to the present, maybe something like 5,000. Uh, but it's, it's really difficult to distinguish. And we're talking about fleeting little fragments of evidence that people are trying to build entire narratives on. Um, as I've said, the introduction to the chicken of the chicken to the Americas is whether we know certainly the Europeans brought it, but whether the Polynesians did as well and what the timing of that may have been is also contentious. And what role the hybridization played in the formation of modern chickens. I mean, to what degree were chickens being, however deliberately, uh, being mixed and hybridized with other species of jungle fowl and acquiring traits from those different species? And what role have those traits played in the formation of modern uh, chickens, both the broilers and the uh, egg layers and fancy breeds and fighting breeds and all kinds of other things. So working out the evolutionary history and the genomic history of chickens is also something that uh, it's much more tractable. I mean, people are working on it now and it's just about the generation of an absolute ton of data, which is well underway. Uh, but I suspect it's not going to answer all the questions. And for that, we're going to need a lot more evidence from many different fields simultaneously. And, and when we look at the genomic evidence, and I know that uh, there's been a lot of breakdown of terms of understanding what traits were associated with domestication. And you mentioned the yellow skin trait that was uh, came from the gray jungle fowl and uh, the uh, thyroid receptor. But And so w- could you tell us more about the traits that are associated with domestication and some of the changes that happened, including maybe those that were brought in from hybridization with other types of birds? Uh, in chickens, we know that when, when you look at any cartoon representation of a chicken, certainly in the West, they all have these yellow legs. And we know that red jungle fowl don't have yellow legs. They've got gray legs. But the gray jungle fowl has the gene that allows for chickens to have yellow legs depending on what they're eating. So we suspect that this gene that allows for the for legs to be yellow within domestic chickens actually came from gray jungle fowl. And that gene is called BCDO2. It's a beta-carotenase uh, gene and what it means is it doesn't quite break down beta carotenoids in your diet and allows those beta carotenoids to sit in the skin and then you can see them um, because they're, they're, they still exist in there. Whereas red jungle fowl are breaking those down so much more efficiently that they don't come to rest in the skin tissue. So, um, so that's one trait. There's the thyroid stimulating hormone receptor I mentioned before about, and we think that that is almost certainly. The domestic variant of that gene, we're not quite sure where it comes from, but we do know that it appears to be really heavily selected at about a thousand uh, thousand years ago. And before that, it was selected enough to get it up to about 40% uh, 
frequency in the population. So what, how important it was and what it was doing and how it actually came to be in the domestic population is also uh, a bit of an unknown. And we know that in lots of other domestic animals, there are numerous instances of genes and characteristics that are brought in or were brought in through hybridization into the domestics from wild populations that themselves were not domesticated. So there's a great story of dogs in Tibet that have a gene that they acquired from wolves in Tibet that allows them to exist at higher levels of um, where the atmosphere is, uh, the oxygen in the atmosphere is much more thin. And so they don't uh, undergo the same kind of hypoxia that you or I might if we didn't have that by not having that same gene. And the same thing is true of the humans in those regions as well. So there's also some suggestions recently about some dogs in East Africa that have some immune genes that they've acquired from wolves in the area that um, were not part of the wolf population from which dogs were descended. So I suspect that as we look more deeply into the genomes of both domestic chickens and the all these possible progenitor species, all these different red jungle farms, different... Um, jungle fowl species, that we might start finding some other genes that are underlying some uh, behavioral or physiological or uh, coat color traits that may be derived from some of these other species. And that's going to be really a whole lot of fun because that'll tell us a lot more about when people with domestic chickens were in those areas and the kinds of relationships they had with those uh, wild birds as well and how the formation of the modern chicken is actually an amalgamation of a, a wide range of different species. And when you talk about the modern chicken, how much has it changed in the last, say, 50 to 100 years? And I guess what were the major drivers, but also what were some of the major traits that have changed? Well, I mean, chickens grow much faster and achieve weights that, as as juveniles, that uh, adults 100 years ago couldn't even dream of. Um, They are... Also, you see a, a wide variety of coat colors. So the same thing that when you know, people talk about their dogs and all these different fancy breeds they've got, people were breeding chickens and called you know fancy breeding uh, well before they were doing it for dogs. I mean, chickens were really the kind of case study for this in terms of the Victorian era. And you can uh, calendars if you go online onto Google and start typing in fancy chicken breeds, and you just get some absolutely insane versions with feathers and coat colors and even um, kind of chickens with no feathers whatsoever. These naked uh, uh, breeds. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely astounding what people have been able to do to change the size, the shape, and the kind of form of the whole biological basis of a chicken to turn it into uh, these really strange little bird monsters, really. <laughs> some, of which are very, some of which are very scary, uh, very much like what we see in dogs as well. So, um, and that is through very deliberate selection for specific extreme traits and that's something also that has been really just in the last couple hundred years that people have been doing uh whereas before that uh when you look at the iconography of chickens going back a couple hundred years you see a lot of different colors and then now most people it's like all the chickens you see are all exclusively one color and so that's why i'm also interested and the team is in general about this movement of the backyard chicken is to sort of you know, it's nice to get some that are speckled and some that are brown and some that are red. And the same is true of eggs as well. So there seems to be this constant push and pull between more variability and more extreme phenotypes, and but also homogenization and making sure that you only have a very limited amount of variability because you're striving to achieve a production goal in terms of the uh, overall carcass weight or uh, how much what immune system you have or anything else. So uh, humans are doing both simultaneously, and the end result is a, a population of global chickens that is just phenomenally variable and has all kinds of surprises. Yeah, well, uh, speaking of backyard chickens, I mean, do you actually keep chickens? 
my wife keeps threatening that we will get some one day, but as of yet, we've uh, we've held out, and quite a few of our neighbors do, and we're going to be looking after our neighbors' chickens next weekend. Oh, all right, well, that'll be fun. <laughs> I, I guess maybe yeah. the the so. Is there anything else I should ask you? Any other thing that you would like to throw in here? Um, well, we know just that the, the chickens appear to be the earliest bird domesticate. And also this idea of them being uh, the most ubiquitous uh, by all, by you take every other domestic animal and probably throw in rats and mice in there as well. And you still don't get the, the body weight that you do for chickens. I mean, they are just absolutely everywhere. And there's whole warehouses full of millions yeah. of birds at the same time. And there are some interesting questions to be asked about where we end up from here. I mean, it's great to be feeding the planet, and, and chickens are a phenomenal resource for doing so. And they've been amazingly plastic in that regard. But we run the risk of of having this production run to the point where the only chickens that make sense to raise are those that are blind because those that they don't peck each other as much. And so really what we're trying to produce is a sustainable meat source that is devoid of all biology or personality. And there's some real ethical and um, disease questions that are associated with all of this and the kind of long-term ability to sustain these resources in the face of a whole host of problems that can come about as a result of just trying to ramp up your production. So, um, and I think the past has a lot to tell us about that. And we can look to see what that changing relationship was between people and chickens over the last 5,000 years and how the modern bird has developed in order to give us an impression of what the limits are of that and what we might want to consider doing as we move forward to ensure that we still are, our lives are still enriched by chickens, but maybe that uh, we don't kill each other in the meantime. No, that's that's very interesting, and it's an excellent point. You know, where are we ultimately going with this? And maybe we could talk about that more in the future, uh, about not just chickens, but any kind of animal domestication. You know, what is our real end goal? And um, So if people want to learn more about your program or maybe follow you online, is there a good place where they can do that? Yeah, uh, we have, uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter. I usually put up our, our papers as they come out and kind of just talk generally about domestication and about evolutionary biology. Uh, we also have a website, which is paleobarn.com with an A-E-O using the English spelling. And there that features uh, a lot of information about what our group is doing and the projects that we're working on and the new papers that are coming out as they as they emerge. And uh, yeah, we've, we've just won another grant recently to work on some more pig related stuff. We've got another paper coming out about that pretty soon. And we're doing a bunch of stuff on rabbits. And you know, we're, at this point, it's uh, hard pressed to find a domestic animal that we are not uh, either actively engaged with or uh, know people who are. And it's really great to be in this field with a huge number of uh, really great people generating a phenomenal amount of data, all of which is being interpreted through the lens of archaeology and anthropology in the past as a way to try and understand our relationship with the natural world. And it's, uh, it's an exciting time. Uh, very good. Well, thank you very much for being a guest on the podcast. And, uh, you know, we'll follow up with you more. Maybe we'll talk about pigs someday. <laughs> so appreciate it very much. Professor Gregor Larson from Oxford University, uh, thank you very much for being on the, on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, you, know the, you know the drill. Tell a friend. Uh, share the story because we need to reach more people with science. Thank you very much for listening and talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. 
More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.